This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network to over 70 community stations around the nation, this is Word for Word. Coming to you from Australia's LGBTI radio station, Joy. Welcome, family and friends, fans and fiends, to today's edition of Word for Word. I want to thank you for tuning in today. I'm Benjamin Norris, and it's simply a delight to continue to work on this show for the Joy Network, which has already featured some of the community's strongest voices. In the tradition of this ongoing program, I continue to look at powerful stories and insights into the life and lifestyle of some incredible people. Each week we will chat with those in and around our community who have inspired us, entertained us, but mostly they've made an impact on the queer community of Australia. Today's guest is one of them. This man was born on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, and while his Chinese heritage and his homosexuality is the backbone to his storytelling, it's been the microscope that he has placed over his upbringing and views on Australia that has made him incredibly relatable. This talented man is a writer, published author, He is a journalist, a prolific LGBTI pundit, and amongst other things, his untelling of his childhood has been featured in a memoir of sorts and is also a popular TV show of the same name called The Family Law. His literary skills has been well sought after, featuring in Frankie Magazine, The Courier Mail, The Monthly, Good Weekend Australia, and look, the list could really go on. I feel like I have the worst work ethic reading all this out. He's even contributed to the TV series Sisters, which was featured on Channel 10 this year, and is currently working with MTC on some upcoming plays, currently featured in the SBS series Filthy Rich and Homeless. I'd like to welcome you, and I'd like to welcome Benjamin Law to Word for Word. Most of us want a sense of recognition and companionship. The easiest way of saying what I do is that I'm a writer. I write for magazines, I write for newspapers, I write books. And so I was reading kind of ahead of my year level or ahead of my age. I write TV shows, I'm currently writing a play. I just write a lot. In February 2016, our national broadsheet, The Australian, chose to make Safe Schools front page news. Marriage equality advocate, Benjamin Law. What's interesting is in Australia, we probably do have a diversity problem. Just because the government didn't do their job, which is to vote for laws, doesn't mean we stop doing our job. Have you got a mother fixation? And sometimes I just want to make people aware that they're not necessarily the centre of their universe. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. Well, this is exciting. And, you know, I've been stalking you for quite some time. Oh, that's, I'm, I'm happy I've seen you outside my bathroom window. I'm pretty sure, unless it was just like a bin or something. <laughs> Thanks for not arresting me, by the way. <laughs> now, I was trying to get your attention on social media for a while because people kept saying, you know, get Benjamin Law okay, to yeah, come on yeah, word yeah. for word. And I found it really, really hard. But you have so many people that follow you on social media. Yeah, I think a lot of them hate follow me as well. It's kind of <laughs> like hate sex, right? But yeah, I don't know how it's happened, but... I've accumulated a lot, so sometimes I don't get to see all of my mentions, and a lot of it's abuse as well, so I'll just kind of like kind of scroll past that, not let it affect me, because I'm dead inside nowadays anyway. <laughs> so much of your upbringing is depicted on the SBS program, The Family Law, which uh-huh. is about your life. That's right. Is it very accurate? Well, it's not a documentary, so we couldn't rep- recreate exactly what happened. It is a half-hour comedy, yeah. and we've also based it in the present day. Like They've got mobile phones and stuff, and I couldn't have grown up in the present day. Do you know what I mean? And I think part of that was signalling to the audience, 
not all of this is true. Mm. It's inspired by a true story. There are some scenes that were pretty much exactly how they happened in my family. Mum always likes to say what she loves about watching the show is she's like, only we know whether that really happened or not. (laughs) And, you know, we can confirm whether some things happened or not, like the way in which my dad was kicked out in the very, very first episode of the very first season. That's very, very similar. But there's stuff coming up in the third season, which will come out on SBS probably sometime in the summer, 2018, 2019, where the whole arc is about Ben finally coming out as gay. And there is a lot of stuff in that series that totally didn't happen, but there's a lot of stuff that also did as well. So, yeah, it's a, it's a mix. What we always say in the writer's room is, we're not trying to stay faithful to the truth of what happened in my life. What we're trying to do is get to an emotional truth, which is what good, you know, scripted TV shows is about. Right. We're going to get into that as we go on. But you grew up in Queensland. Uh-huh. Nambour? Nambour. Well, I was born in Nambour. Okay. That's one part of the Sunshine Coast. The only reason I was born there is it was the only hospital. But Nambour has its perks. It's where Kevin Rudd and Wayne Swan were educated. It's like the breeding hole of future politicians, I guess. But yeah, no, I grew up on the Sunshine Coast, which is kind of home to a lot of bad insane politicians. How would you describe your childhood? Uh, It was pretty idyllic in some ways. Like, for instance, I grew up in the 80s in Queensland, which sounds like it could have been messed up. But the 80s were like all about multiculturalism. It was all about World Expo 88. It was all about different ethnicities and different cuisines coming to your doorstep. That was cool. I mean, I was like the only Asian kid pretty much the only Asian kid in my year level, almost. But I was showing kids how to use chopsticks. They thought my hair was interesting and cool. Like I was, I had some kind of street cred because I was a minority and I was living in the suburbs with a family that loved me. So I had a really good start. But then things kind of flipped in the 1990s because then Pauline Hanson becomes really big. She starts off hating Asians like me. That changes the conversation in the schoolyard with my friends. My parents split up. So childhood was idyllic. Teen years were kind of dicey. I think that happens. That's quite common, though, for some people. Like, I think once you get to the difficult years, like your puberty and all the rest of it, things go pear shape. Beyond all of that, I'm growing up gay and closeted in the last, at least, mainland Australian state to decriminalise homosexuality. And I know that by the time I'm in my teen years, homosexuality is decriminalised. But, you know, for a significant proportion of my childhood, the adult that I'd end up being was criminalised by the state. And just because legislation changes doesn't mean attitudes catch up. Mm. So that was kind of on my mind a lot as well. It's interesting, years later, I I went to my high school 10-year reunion, very Romy and Michelle, uh, (laughs) and heaps of my female friends or, you know, peers that I knew going through school came out as gay themselves. But I think I was like the only dude gay guy of my year level that I knew of. So we never spoke about that out loud when we were growing up. But even now I'm like, wow, was I really the only one out of all of those people? Like it's a pretty big school. I remember thinking I was the only one, but then I got uh-huh. on a plane going to Queensland. Yes. And uh, this very flamboyant male um, air steward came up to me and went, Ben... It's me, Richard. Oh, my God. And then told me that... And he was a friend of mine. Uh Uh-huh. And I went the whole way through high school with him, never knowing that he was gay. Was he not as camp when you were going through school? Oh, Richard had turned it up, I reckon. Not that that's an indicator. No. But at the same time, you're like, 
you know, why didn't we know this earlier? Exactly. Oh my god, you could have had like a back backshed wristy. Yeah, maybe. Missed I don't opportunity. Know. Missed opportunities so, from high school. It's funny because I talk to a lot of friends who are either my age or younger, mm. went to really progressive schools, super accepting, of course, the inner city kids as well. And they were like they never even had to come out. Like they just talked about being gay or like I'm going out with this boy and they were like having it all throughout high school and I'm like Bitch, how come you got to start your sluttery early? And the other thing I think about as well is when I look back at photos of me as a teenager, I'm like, nah, you wouldn't have been getting any action anyway, actually. I was hideous. Mm. I, was, I was a disgrace to myself. Everyone should be hideous as a teenager. I think it gives you character as an adult. What was your relationship as you were growing up? What was uh, your relationship like with your parents? We were really close, actually. My mum and I especially. I mean, I'm one of five children and my mum was kind of completely outnumbered by us. She kind of mainly worked full-time in, at, you know, at home as like, you know, um, domestic manager, however you want to call it, but taking care of five kids full-time. And as the kind of typical cliched gay boy of the family, closeted gay boy, you get really close to your mum. So mum and I were extremely close. My dad worked like seven days and nights a week. So kind of traditional migrant father, Worked, 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 worked. And he was very good at providing in that way, but we didn't see much of him growing up. Mm. Your relationship with your mum is something that's been discussed a lot because of her personality being quite strong and Mm -hmm. quite dominant. Oh, it's big. (laughs) How would you describe your Uh mum to start with? Uh, Okay, so she is a Chinese-Australian woman now in her 60s. She's had five children, and rather than being either a shy and retiring Chinese migrant woman or a typical tiger mum, she's neither of those things. And instead, if, say, you are a woman who has children, she'll come up to you and she'll start comparing birth stories, like childbirth stories, in extremely graphic fashion, as if you've both been through a war together, which you kind of have in your own way. But she'll talk about like, you know, and then I tore and then you have to get stitches, blah, 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 blah. This is sometimes like within the first minutes of meeting you, like she's gone up to my pregnant friend. They've not had their child yet. They're completely freaked out. I'm like, mum, you need to just (laughs) dial it back. So she's pretty loud when she wants to be. Mm. She's pretty hilarious and was deeply embarrassing when I was growing up. But then you become an adult and you're like, actually, that's awesome. I'm so glad you were that mum. I mean, you've got a very strong relationship with her. Uh Do you think that has a lot to do with the fact that you're growing up as a gay boy? Do you think a lot of gay boys have strong relationships with their mothers? I think all gay boys idolise strong women, generally, Mm. right? Yeah. And to be a single mum in a pretty kind of like white bread part of Australia... You have to be pretty strong and fierce. And so I looked up to that quality in my mum. Like sometimes that was the quality that made me argue with her ferociously through my (laughs) teens and 20s. But it's also the part that I know that I respect, you know, that kind of inner strength because, you know, she's seen some shit. Uh, And I think a lot of gay boys look up to strong women who've seen some shit. Mm. And a lot of those women often are our mums. We like... We like rooting for the underdog who have the odds stacked against them in a system that's rigged because we know what that's like, you know, whether we're conscious of that or not. <laughs> I've asked that question to lots of uh-huh. men before about, about that their moms. I've thought about it. If you're a woman in society and as much as we'd like to say men and women are equal, we know they're not treated equal. So to be a woman in society, you're not even a minority group, but you are still shit. 
on in some fundamental way. Gay people get that. Queer people get that. 100%. Your parents are both immigrants and your dad was from China and your mum's from Malaysia, is that right? Yeah, I mean, they're both Chinese ethnically. Mum was born in Malaysia, dad was born in the south of China. But they met in Hong Kong, is that right? That's right. So they moved to Hong Kong kind of quite young, I think both in their teens, for different reasons. My dad and his mum, he's an only child, moved to Hong Kong kind of like as economic migrants from Guangdong. And then my mum kind of fled with her huge family from Malaysia to Hong Kong because there was a lot of ethnic anti-Chinese violence. And the day after they left Malaysia, actually, there were, like, kind of riots and anti-Chinese... Yeah, there was a lot of violence towards Chinese people in Malaysia the day after they left in Kuala Lumpur. But they were in Ipoh, a different part of Malaysia. But, yeah, that's where they met in Hong Kong. And then they got married and then they... Went to Australia where they just bred a lot. They just <laughs> had a lot, too many children probably. No offence to my younger sisters. <laughs> yeah, because there's five of them. Uh-huh. Why do you think they chose Queensland out of Australia? That's a really good question because I get why they chose, chose Australia. They wanted a family. They needed space. Hong Kong has none. Australia has probably too much despite what the bumper stickers tell you. <laughs> and... My father had been to Australia before and he'd been to America and he thought America was a bit more scary. He thought Australians were really, really friendly. So they moved to Australia. And I think it was because my uh, my family's extended kind of friendship network, they had like businesses already in Queensland. So it meant that my dad and mum could hit the ground running as soon as they landed. But for mum, who hadn't been to this country before, it was this huge culture shock because not only has she gone from one of the most dense, busy megalopolises in the world, Hong Kong. She's gone from that to not just Australia, not just Queensland, but like coastal, suburban Queensland. She was like, what's this? Like, she thought it was beautiful, but it was really... Different. Different. Yeah. Yeah. And where they started was, as she calls it, a ghost town, partly because no one was there and partly because everyone was white. That's an accurate way of saying it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just can't even fathom what that... What that gear change would have been like for her. I have just done three years of breakfast radio in central Queensland. So uh-huh. it was, you know, very um, nostalgic in lots of ways when mm. I was watching the show, yeah. The Family Law, because a lot of the setting for that just looked exactly the same. It's very hot suburban Queensland. Yeah. And Queensland's often represented as like the beach and sunshine and bikinis. And yes, we kind of lived in that area. But because we're Asian, we're like, we can't. We can't swim well. Like well, That's not really our <laughs> Queensland, but there is kind of a suburban landscape that I think feels familiar to a lot of people who've either lived, grown up or worked there. And now with your siblings, so you've got three sisters and one brother. That's true. So that's there's right. five of you. Uh-huh. What dynamic did you have fitting into that part of the family? I think there was a lot of... Not competition, but you needed to be loud in order to be heard. It's so funny. My boyfriend is a white only child. He's very well-spoken. And when he's just around our family, I mean, he's used to it now. But when he's around our family, I think he kind of feels slightly assaulted. There's just like so many people, but we need to speak loudly in order to be heard. There's Cantonese and English going on. Cantonese is like a fighting, really brutal language. Um and so, in terms of the dynamic between the siblings, it was that kind of stuff, but, you know, always framed with love. We're, like, each other's strongest allies. We're all quite different in our own ways. The older two are quite sensible. They've got normal jobs. And then the youngest three, we're kind of the hot messes. We're kind of, you know, work in the arts or the media. 
I'm a writer. My younger sister, Tammy, is a photojournalist. My younger sister, youngest sister, Michelle, is a screenwriter and playwright. So we're all over the place doing our stuff that our older siblings don't understand and vice versa. I like, though, with what your parents must have taught you, and that was to do something that you love. Yeah. Which is very much comes across with all of you, is that you're obviously passionate about, you know, what it is that you're currently doing now. Do you think that was a conscious thing that your parents were doing? Sometimes I wonder because, you know, my dad especially is traditional Chinese and I'm sure there's a part of him who would, who'd, that would be thrilled if one of us became a doctor. We have doctorates in the family. We're just not medical doctors. It's like we've got PhDs. So it's kind of like, well, I'm a doctor now, Dad, but not a kind of doctor who can help you in any way, shape or form. And I think they were, you know, because they're migrants – and they had to really work hard in this country in order to get a foothold. They kind of changed their attitudes as time went on, I feel. Like, they probably came here wanting their kids to be, you know, accountants and doctors and lawyers and all those sorts of things that, say, my, my uncles and aunties want their kids to be. Mm. But they also acknowledged that there was something about the Australian culture that they really liked, which is... You encourage your kids to do something that they're passionate about and that they're happy about, that happiness is its own currency, that toiling just for the sake of toiling isn't necessarily great because they both did that in their own way. Mm. How would you describe Benjamin Law then as a child? As a child, super happy, super attention-seeking, not dissimilar to now, to be quite honest, <laughs> very gregarious, like I loved I loved like having friends. I was kind of one of those people who had like a hungry Jack's birthday party and invited my entire year level just because not because like I wanted to be popular but just because I expected like we're all friends, aren't we? We're all friends. I was that kind of annoying Tracy Flick person, I think. <laughs> I was really into gymnastics, doing it and watching it. Uh, later on, was just really into gladiators and man, oh man. You know, I don't know, like, do you remember those shows growing up, Ben? Like, I 100% you... remember man, oh man. Yeah. That's the one where they pushed them in the pool, They pushed right? them in the pool. They had, like, the speedo competition. <laughs> it was just fun and fun-friendly family entertainment. Yeah, I, I think I was, I was kind of like a kid who was loving life. But, of course, that was childhood. Teen years, I was a bit more surly, I think. It was the 90s. You get surly in the 90s. I think once you get to your teenage years and things are as a little bit uncertain, yeah. you seem to reserve yourself a little bit more. Yeah, and plus, like, you become much more aware of your sexuality and that kind of eats you up. I don't know. I'm not sure you ever shake off some of the awkwardness that you kind of carried around with your teen years. But certainly, I'm far more comfortable in my skin far more comfortable and secure in my relationship and my work and all that sort of stuff. So there are some measures by which I'm completely much more settled. When did you work out that you were gay? I think somewhere along the way I read that you didn't like this question. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't, I don't, maybe, maybe a previous version of myself has said that, but like thinking about it now, I think I always knew because like even the way that I felt about my male friends in preschool, I knew was different. You know, and they were always the good-looking boys that I was friends with. You know, I wasn't going to make no friends with thug boys, um, <laughs> but I didn't have the vocabulary for it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, right. Gayness wasn't something that was necessarily spoken about until you get to school, and then it's spoken about as as a negative thing in epithets, and so then you're like, oh well, I'm not that, or I don't want to be that, but you still feel it. So there's a difference between knowing the vocab 
acknowledging it, accepting it, and then coming out. So I think for me it was kind of this process, but I think I knew from a really early age, like day one really. When did it become something that you felt like you needed to tell people about then? Oh, probably like right throughout high school, like puberty, when it becomes like one, overwhelming those feelings, and two, when when those discussions become quite explicit, how people feel about gay people, and you really feel you're the only one keeping this secret. Like, I don't think people kind of... You know, not that you and I are old by my by my kind of uh, understanding of old, but at the same time, we grew up in a either largely pre-internet or very very slow internet era, and it wasn't until the internet happened that you could really connect with other people. Like at school, you weren't going to talk. Like I wasn't going to talk about that. Who could you even begin to have that conversation with? So, would you say the first person you talked to about being gay yourself was online? Actually, funnily enough, I think you're right because when I when I go back, the, the kind of official story that I tell people and I tell myself is, you know, I came out first to my best friend, then I came out to my mum. But I think there were like in those early days of ICQ where you're having chats with, when I think back on it, kind of lecherous older dudes who were like, wow, you're in high school, tell me more. It's like, I'm just... I'm just a dumb gay teenager. That is <laughs> so, yeah, so creepy. I know. Like, looking back, I'm like, that is so, so creepy that I was having those conversations with, like, really questionable adults. Um, How old would you have been at that age? Oh, like 14, 15, 16 or something. 15, maybe? Yeah. That was, that was, not, that was not a great thing to do, but you wanted that connection. Like, wow, I'm talking to another real-life gay person. And but, you would say that was at 14? Yeah, 14, 15 or something like that. And then what the story that you then have started telling people is that you told your best friend. Well, I mean, that is actually what happened, but I guess that's the first time I said it out loud. You know, to, to, to be <laughs> typing something out is like a whole other thing. I think I might have had like a, an American pen friend who told me he was bisexual. And I, and I wrote back to him saying, oh, you know, I'm totally like, I'm really accepting. Tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. Okay. Send me more photos. Um, but I don't think I ever came out to him. When I think back on it, obviously that dramatic moment is when you tell someone in your life for the first time. But the, but the stakes are lower when it's a stranger who doesn't have a face and you'll never meet even though they probably want you to. Mm. Isn't that kind of terrifying now, thinking back on it? I think of that. I think of those, what is it, Gator and Manhunt and all those yeah. sites that you could go on and try and talk to people. Very I remember pure. no one no one was interested in me on those gay sites because mm-hmm. of the fact that my grammar and my spelling was so poor oh. that people used to think I was like, there was something wrong with Wouldn't me. Wouldn't some people find that hot? It's just like, oh, you're such a dumb hoe. <laughs> I would have liked that, but I'm pretty sure people <laughs> just blocked me. They're like, they're like, what is wrong? His, his photo looks all right, but they'd be like... You uh, were trying to communicate an emoji before emoji even existed. 100%. <laughs> so then... Did you tell your mum first before you told your dad? Yeah, because I just knew my dad's much more traditional Chinese guy. Like, I wouldn't even tell him anything about my life generally, let alone my sexuality. <laughs> and Poor because, dad. like I said before, my mum and I were really tight. So what my mum thought did actually matter. I mean, what my dad thought also mattered as well. But my mum was such a central being in my life so I needed her to know like you know I needed her to know where I was in the world generally like I'm I'm on a bus on the way you know blah 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 like she always wanted to know that I was safe and what I was up to and what my world was so it felt important for both of us well it felt important to me to tell her 
Did she already know before you told her? No. No, she because when I when I came out to her, I couldn't even get the words out because I was so scared. I'm like, I've got news to tell you, you know, like crying like Sally from Home and Away cried. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, that's a very obscure reference. And uh, I couldn't even get the words out. Mum was freaked out, obviously. Like, what is my son? What's happened to my son? So played this awful guessing game. It's like, have you gotten your best friend pregnant? And I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Are you on drugs? And I'm like. You know how hard it is to get drugs in this town? No, it would probably be much easier <laughs> it nowadays. It probably is. And then her last her last question was, Are you gay? And yeah, and then then, you know, famously, like in the book, she's like, Oh, there's nothing wrong with being gay. Not your fault, just means something went wrong in the womb. <laughs> Is that what your mum still thinks? No, no, no. She's got a bit of a vocabulary for it. But you've got to keep in mind, like, we didn't know anyone who's openly gay. Like, there was no one in our lives that we even knew was gay at the time. And, you know, we didn't have a... Like, she didn't have a vocabulary for, for that sort of stuff, you know? So, for her, with her limited framework, her telling me essentially that... Look, you're deformed, but I love you. <laughs> I love that well, she said something went wrong. Yeah, it just means something went wrong in the womb. And I was like, uh, yeah, interesting way of phrasing it, but I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah. If you've just tuned in, we are chatting to Benjamin Law. Thought, what was your first experience of homosexuality? Like, when did you, not your first gay experience, but like, mm. when did you first realise that there was gay people? Oh, uh, I mean, like, Julian Clary and people like that were on were on television. And... You know, gay people were the brunt of jokes, whether it was veiled or explicit, like on Are You Being Served and stuff like that. Like these super camp um, men on television. And then you had Mardi Gras broadcast. But that kind of freaked me out as a kid because I'm like, oh, my God, is that is that what gay is? And, of course, you know, I love the Mardi Gras now and it's this massive celebration. But when you think that's that's the only representation you get as a kid, you're like, oh, my God, am I, I going to have to wear chaps 24-7? <laughs> and, of course, now I would embrace that that prospect. Um, but, uh, but it's so true. I think you're right because I can relate to this. And I yeah. think that anything that was on television for us growing up in that stage of the 90s was really effeminate gay men that sounded a certain way. And there's nothing wrong with that, obviously, because, you know, I hear a camp voice now and I'm like, oh, my people. <laughs> but if that's the only representation, like it's it's always the danger of a single story, as, you know, Chimamanda uh, uh, Ngozi Adichie says, she always talks about the danger of a single story. And that's true when, when you're any kind of minority. If you've got mm. one representation of what being gay is, and that is a camp flamboyant white man then it's like well how do i even conform to that and of course there's nothing wrong with being those things like that's wonderful but it's one part and it's one dimensional of a much bigger community you know gay camp flamboyant men have complex lives outside of how they speak and and people who don't who aren't flamboyant have rich and complex lives as well. I think what what we didn't have was complexity and variety when we were growing up. That's the problem. Mm. So... Well, our idols were very f- scarce. Like, yeah. as in, when I think back to who we looked up to, uh, there was basically nobody. Uh-huh. But then I guess for you, you're looking up to, well, nobody that's out, that's gay and Chinese, I guess. Exactly. But I do remember when I left home and I was reading Good Weekend magazine, because in Queensland, it's just the Courier Mail. So mm. I would get the Sydney Morning Herald and feel very sophisticated. 
And I remember there was like a Mardi Gras kind of special issue or something. It was timed for Mardi Gras. And Anton Enos, the SBS newsreader that I kind of like knew from television, was talking about his gay relationship with his lover, Roger, in the two of us section. And it blew my mind. I was like, I didn't know he was gay. Oh, my God. It's like when you still find out people. And he's hot as well. Yeah. And, like, years later, I would walk down Oxford Street with my boyfriend, like, visiting Sydney, and we walked past each other. And I was like, oh, my God, that's him. And we turned around and we kind of, like, I know, I like to think that I locked eyes with Anton Enos. I mean, we're friends now. but <laughs> But it just blew my mind that I had had gay representation in my life, but I didn't even know it. Growing up in the 90s was difficult. What would you say was the hardest hurdle? Where I grew up and when I grew up, my area was a huge white monoculture. Mm. It was deeply politically conservative. I just thought that was what the rest of Australia was like. I thought it was a conservative monoculture. It's not until you travel out to the cities and stuff that you realise it isn't. And so when I go back to my hometown now, I'm like... You know, it's a beautiful place, but how did you grow up here? Like, in retrospect, I think I found it tough, but I didn't realise that it was. There's a strength, I think, to you, though, where I think that you just succeed in certain environments. I think it's just a part of who you are. Well, I think think queer people have to be adaptive generally. Yeah. And, um, you know, queer people are off... Like, there's never not a period where... We're just the only dot, dot, dot in the room. You know, that's a really common experience even after we come out. But when before you've come out and you're in a religious education class, so I went to a very religious school and they're having conversations about homosexuality and even the broad-minded teachers will say, look, you know, God loves everyone and homosexuals aren't the problem in the Bible. It's the act itself. So you could be gay, but if you don't have sex, then that's totally fine. And it's like... Wow, I guess that's kind of progressive. I, I'll take that, I guess. So, I mean, I by that stage, I'm not religious, but I'm like, this is this is what our teachers think. I'm not really sure. You know, in retrospect, it definitely wasn't a safe school. You internalize all of that, mm. and you kind of have to, as much as that's becoming like a hard tumorous knot inside you. You're kind of at the same time building an armor. I think that's very true. My mom was worried about me at a certain age where I hadn't even told her about my homosexuality. Mm -hmm. And I went and saw a... She organized me to see a psychologist. And I went and saw a psychologist who I confirmed that I was gay to. Right. And she told me that it actually actually was a very dangerous time to be gay. Wow. And so that... That pushed me back into the closet. Wow. I mean, this this is a huge duty of care issue. And... It makes me think, like, in one way, was she right? Because to come out socially, socially it's gay, but was she talking more medically or something? She was saying that it was unsafe. Yeah. And she was sort of alluding to the fact that, um, you know, don't have sex with men. Yeah. But all of the, I mean, but she, uh, overall, she gave me the feeling of shame, mm. which is the opposite of pride, exactly. which is where I needed to be going. Yeah. So you think about how far we've come now being in 2018, looking back mm. to that era... It's a very different time. But when you think about it, Ben, like our generation, kind of older end of millennial, bottom end of Gen X, we we kind of came of age, we were entering puberty just as AIDS was crescendoing. Mm. And so it's obviously so much worse for the generation that copped the brunt of HIV AIDS where it really was a terrifying death sentence because we didn't understand it, drugs are still being developed. We, as children and coming into our teen years, 
we we were the first generation where even before we were having sex, sex was pathologized, and beyond that, the sex that we wanted to have was pathologized. Mm. Like sex could not be disentangled with a fear of dying. And what does that do to your development? You know, like that's that's a scary thing. And that's kind of what was embedded with uh, in us, whether it was implicitly through like Grim Reaper ads or explicitly in the case of your psychologist. But I think in general, I think that was the consensus was that whether or not you were gay or straight, there was a general fear overall. Yeah, of sex. There was a lot more shame to do with sex and about who you were yeah. in that era than there is certainly now. Yeah. Where there's a bit more. I mean, that could just be me and my age as well, mm. looking back at those things. You know, being gay and Asian, obviously, there's two different factors and they have obviously made a huge impact on your life. But would you say one is more challenging than the other? It depends on the context and sometimes they intertwine. Like, for instance, I would, you know, I've been in a relationship with my boyfriend for over a decade now. But I do think to myself, if I was single and especially in a city like Sydney, I find it really, really tough because racism within the gay scene, it's something that we don't talk about much, but it is rampant. Like if you are someone who's brown or yellow or black on Grindr, like the shit that my friend, that my single friends or friends who are in open relationships, like who are, who are looking for hookups or relationships, like the stuff, the messages they get, either completely fetishizing them or completely dismissing them because of their race is brutal and a lot of people would pin it down to like well that's just how i'm geared but this is like a bigger structural conversation about how people of non-white backgrounds are framed as non-sexual beings or they're framed as overly sexual beings and when you i don't know like i just i just feel like that would be really really tough and there are other things as well when you come from a non-anglo background and you are queer that can make it tough. You know, if you come from a more traditional culture, there are often bigger expectations about how you behave as an adult, whether you'll marry someone of the opposite sex and the family that you'll start. I'm lucky in that my mum's like far more open-minded, but, you know, if you come from a lot of Asian cultures, if you come from a lot of, you know, Middle Eastern cultures, if you come from any kind of traditional culture, those pressures that white queer people already feel are completely amplified so just the other day i was doing a talk at a high school a sydney state high school actually and one of the questions that i got both heartened me but because they were able to they felt brave enough to ask it in front of their friends but it was also like it reminded me that there are these issues there was a young girl who said do you have any advice not just for coming out but coming out in a middle eastern family like a more traditional middle eastern family uh, presumably muslim and um and I was like, you know, that that is a very kind of specific dynamic that is different to a lot of Anglo families. So you need to you need to address those head on. You need to get specific about what you're talking about. Yeah. Essentially, if you're saying white people are by definition more attractive to you sexually than any other race, well, let's just call you for what you are. You're a white supremacist. But what about people out there that say that they're sexually attracted to only like let's just say white man that says that they're only attracted to Asian just as, men. Just as problematic, right? I mean, we've all got people we're attracted to, yes. We do have preferences, yes. But I think a lot of this comes down to, one, you probably haven't travelled much if you think an entire race is not good looking. Two, you've been drenched in a media that has super-saturated the idea of European 
being the ideal. I mean, when was the last person that you even saw in a modeling catalog, male modeling, even the gay media who isn't white? Like, there is a huge, huge saturation of that. I saw Crazy Rich Asians the other day. Like, every dude in that, like, if you say that you're not attracted to Asian dudes, try watching Crazy Rich Asians and hiding your Like, every one of those guys is like the most attractive person in the world. And I also saying this, acknowledging that right up until my 20s, I was the kind of person who said, I don't find Asian men attractive. You know, me, because I've been raised within a white media culture. I'm Asian myself, and this creates like this loop of self-loathing too. But it wasn't until I traveled heaps through Asia where I'm like, holy f***. One, I feel great about myself. And two, because, you know, I'm surrounded by images of, like, beautiful Asian men. And secondly, I'm realizing I've only been exposed to a single idea or representation of of Asian men. Like, if you went to a country where, like, white people were the minority and those are the only people you'd encounter, maybe you'd feel like maybe white people are all unattractive as well. But Mm. that's not the case. You just haven't been exposed to any variety. So I think it's a symptom of closed-mindedness, but I also think it's a symptom of a very narrow mediascape. One-third of the people in Australia right now aren't white. Are you going to completely dismiss them from your sexual and romantic repertoire? One-third of the people you walk past on the street? That, to me, is really weird. Have you ever been in a relationship with another Asian man? Uh, no, because I've been with my white, white boyfriend for so, so long. <laughs> uh, Ten years, isn't it? What? Yeah, over that, over that. But no, like, but at the same time, you know, I've gotten drunk with plenty of Asian dudes and we're just like, you know, when you just acknowledge, like, if we, if we were single, we'd be f- <laughs> You'd be definitely hooking up. If you yeah. Like. Moving away from that and talking about sort of your ambition and what you want to do for work, when was it that you realised that you wanted to become a writer? Um, I don't know. I still question whether I should be. <laughs> I've just um, read all of your books and so I'm like, you're a good writer. Oh, thank you, Ben. When I was a teenager, I really just wanted to be an actor on Home and Away. I don't know why, but that was my thing. But I'm kind of like, I don't think I had a mirror that was very accurate if I was thinking that. And, you know, I even, like, auditioned for, like, QUT, the Brisbane Nida. Didn't get in, obviously. But the other thing that I always really loved growing up was reading. Like, reading books as a kid and then just reading magazines when I was a teenager. Rolling Stone Juice. Again, the internet was very, very slow. So magazines were kind of my suburban lifeline to Mm. the rest of the world, to popular culture, to news and current affairs. And it astounded me that... You know, stories about science and politics and music and the arts. I could access that in the suburbs through these things. Mm. And I've read them voraciously. So by the time I graduated from uni, I thought, well, I like reading so much. Maybe writing would be good as well. Like I never had this grand idea of like the writing lifestyle or being a published author. I just thought, oh, it'd be really cool to write for magazines. So I enrolled in a writing degree started writing for street press, started writing for newspapers and then eventually glossy magazines. And then I just kind of really fell in love with it. So it wasn't like a childhood aspiration, but because I loved the other end of it so much. And I guess to be a writer, you have to be a voracious reader. So I already had that in the bag. Yeah, wow. And then what would you say makes a good writer? I think it's different for different readers, right? We all want different things from writing, but I think... Most of us want a sense of recognition and companionship. Mm. I want an education from writing as well. Like I want you to tell me something I didn't know. And that could be like something that's purely educational 
or it can be watching a TV show that is scripted that tells me about a community that I haven't had access to. Um, so I want something that's original, that takes me aback, that, I don't know, like, is that astounds me and entertains me at the same time. I don't, I don't think that I don't need it to be florid or I don't need I don't need sentences to be beautiful or anything like mm. that's a that's a bonus. I remember I was um I went to an event with Annie Prue, Annie Prue the American writer who, you know, wrote Brokeback Mountain. Mm. Um the short story. Yeah, the short story and she had a really good saying. She was like there's no such thing as the perfect sentence. There is such a thing as the right sentence. You've just got to get the sentence right for for the story that you're trying to convey. But yeah. it sounds like, you know, you got caught up in the idea of being able to write about something out of curiosity, which is great. Yeah, huge busybody. If you're a huge busybody, writing or the media general is a great profession. Seems like you like facts as well. Yeah. It's interesting. I read somewhere that when you were younger, you're a bit of an embellisher, a bit of, you've even described yourself as a bit of a liar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, then you've obviously flipped that switch at some point. Mm -hmm. How old was that when you realized that you didn't, you were looking for the truth and only the truth? Oh, when I realised I couldn't write fiction very well. <laughs> because at university, you do all kinds of writing. You do, like, our course, we did playwriting. You do journalism. Mm. You do feature writing. You do um, prose, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, far out. I really love reading fiction, but this is not my strong suit. But what I do love is the stuff that I spent my teen years reading, which is, like, feature journalism, like, feature stories that tell us something new but get into human stories and get to expand on them, you know, like the stuff that Truman Capote and Joan Didion and Hunter S. Thompson kind of pioneered back in the day in America. Uh, And then, I don't know, I guess it were... Like, I kind of have this idea, this theory that with exercise, like all of our bodies, all of us can exercise, but all of our bodies are geared towards different exercise. Mm. Like, I can swim quite well nowadays, but I can't run to save my life. My boyfriend's (laughs) a runner. Like, some people are weightlifters. Some people are really good at yoga. You know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But I just, I I think part of why I love nonfiction is getting to talk to people and to pick their brains through interviews and stuff like that. That's certainly something that you have to do with fiction sometimes as well, but I like that research nerdery side too. When did you choose to go to QUT? And you did creative writing? Uh Uh-huh. So when when did you decide that was the subject for you? Well, when I was rejected from drama school, how dare they? And when the options came up, so I thought, well, I'm not an actor. I'm not a good actor, obviously. But I really like reading magazines and newspapers and stuff like that. Maybe I can learn to write like that. And it was a very new course. No one had even graduated from it by the time I enrolled. But it was a small kind of academy-like class. Like there were only 25 or 30 of us in the entire course. Yeah, right. And that appealed to me, the idea that we could all learn side by side with friends that we'd be tight with. But we learned really good stuff and we had good teachers and... Yeah, I stayed at university for seven years. Like, I did honours, I did my doctorate. It was like, well, I can't... I don't know how to work as a writer in the real world. I don't know how to earn money. Can I just keep studying? Can I get a scholarship? Thanks. Was it scary to think of going into the real world and making money out of that as a career? Oh, terrifying. You know, it was a hustle. And it's still a hustle because I've been a freelancer, like, basically since I graduated from my postgrad. 
But you find opportunities, you know, you find opportunities to write a book, you find fellowships, you start a column in a newspaper, you, yeah, it's, a, it's an endless kind of, you need to be indefatigable, you also need to be willing or even embrace the idea that you're going to spend most of the day alone by yourself, um, and you have to be flexible with the kind of assignments that you get. So I've written, you know, one of the questions I sometimes get asked is like, you've written screenplays, you've written books, you've written serious journalism, blah, 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 blah. One, I do it because I, I like doing all of that stuff. But yeah. the second thing is like, well, if it's work, I'm going to try to do it because, you know, writing in this country, like writers, full-time professional writers, they earn an average salary of like just over $12,000 per year in this country. They teach and you know, do other things around that to make sure that they have an income. But that's kind of the base salary for professional writers. So you gotta you got to move. I got the very first edition of Frankie magazine. Oh, yeah. Um, and then bought, I think it was the next 20 editions. Yeah. I did grow out of it eventually. Uh-huh. But it was like I collected magazines because my mum liked us to read. So she promoted us to read whatever we would read. And that ended up being magazines for a small yeah. period of time. But it was like... Very different to finally read something that spoke to me in a really different way, different to other glossy magazines. Well, at the time, it was like there was Clio, there was Cosmo, or there was Marie Claire, which seemed like a bit older. But But it it was was a unique voice that was in Frankie that seemed to come across. And I didn't know that that was what I was reading, Mm -hmm. but I went and had a look because I don't chuck out my magazines, so I still have them at home. And then I think you're in the... About episode two, I mean, yeah, from, issue two from or three. Issue two onwards, I wrote for Frankie basically in every issue up until like, I don't know, issue 40 or something. I'd stopped reading it at that point. But I, it's weird to me, though, to realize that I'd been reading those stories yeah. that you'd, co- you'd been contributing to uh-huh. that magazine and that here you are now. Yes. You know, but real life, not a hologram. Yeah. But it's still very, it's amazing to see that you could make a career and make money out of this passion that you had and all that time you spent at university and then go on to, I mean, you've been contributed to like 50 other publications, mm-hmm. more more so, more likely, you know, you've gone on to be very successful. Did you ever think you would become this successful with your writing? The aim was to survive off my work. Just and enough think, money to buy yeah, some beers. And I think, yeah, exactly. Because um, that costs. But I think like for, well, for me, I'm, I can't talk for every writer, obviously, but I really just wanted to be able to make a living off my work. So when every job opportunity came through, yes, part of it was creative ambition and part of it was like, this is work. You've got work. Take it. Embrace it. Yes. When I started being able to say no to work, like that's like, oh my God, I never thought I'd get to the point where I'd ever be able to say no to a job. Like you'd take every possible thing. Like political reporting, yeah, I've never done it before, but I will, I will, I will. So you just kind of like dive in and you have to be very, very um, quick on your feet. Um, Is there a certain type of writing that you like or a genre that you like to stay in? Not necessarily. Like right now I'm writing like a big feature story for the monthly magazine and that's more serious. But, but then, then you've I'm, also written for things like there was your contribution to Sisters on Channel 10. Yeah. You've also been recently announced as working with the MTC Theatre Company, uh-huh, or Melbourne uh-huh. Theatre Company. You've done your research, Ben. So it's interesting to see very different styles of writing. You know, like how would you describe what you contributed to Sisters for Channel 10? Oh, that was such a joy working with John O'Gavin, who is one of the main writers and people behind Offspring, for instance. That team was just really great. I hadn't worked for 
proper commercial TV. Like SBS has commercials, obviously, who broadcast the family law. But working for like a, a commercial environment was really, really satisfying and, and fun. And the different thing about writing for television is it's so collaborative. Mm. And that was actually something I had to really get used to, the idea that we're all around a table and just vomiting out ideas like, would this work or if I was in that situation, blah. I was really shy in those writers' rooms to begin with because I'm working on my own and the idea that ideas are being pitched live, that that was terrifying. But now I kind of realise, actually, it's like a really good dinner party. If you're, mm. if you're just throwing around ideas, not all of them get up, like that's just... That's just talking about life. And with a show like Sisters, um, you know, developing episodes with a team of just brilliant, brilliant people like John O'Gavin, like Michael Lucas, like Imogen Banks. You know, I think for me, the main thing that I like is just being able to change gears. So if I go from a collaborative environment, the next thing I do is probably going to be solo. And if I go from something that's funny, the next thing I want to do is probably going to be serious. As long as I get to shift gears throughout the week I'm happy what's the process then with Melbourne Theatre Company like how do you contribute to writing for that oh I don't know I've never written a play before I don't know what I'm doing Ben did you put your hand up for something you can't do yeah but that's been my entire career that's been my entire career pitching something I'm like I can totally do this and I'm like oh my god I have to do it now so I'm writing I'm writing a play we are like I've had two full drafts Um, we're up to a second draft with which we're very happy about it's um you know, it's a play that combines all of our preoccupations with real estate and mental illness and capitalism gone bad. Of course, it's a comedy. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I just, I've had this idea for a really, really long time and I knew it wasn't a feature article. I knew it wasn't a TV show. There were some things about it where I'm like, it's a stage show. So I pitched it to MC, MTC. They took it. The re, the the point, you know, that's that's a very... You know, I come out of that process very smug. I'm like, I'm going to write a play. But you never progress as a writer unless you take on opportunities and jobs for which you feel slightly unprepared. Going back a little bit and talking about the novels that you wrote, when it came to doing The Family Law, and that was your first book that you had published in, well, I think you wrote it in like 2009, 2010. Yeah. It was published around then. Did you? Were you nervous at that stage? Did you feel like you were a, a small fish in a big pond? Yeah. I was. I was quite happy with the book and with about the idea of it coming out but then just before it was about to be released I kind of you know my guts dropped because I'm like what have you done you've you've done something stupid you've written about growing up gay and Asian in the 1990s in a family that's divorcing in the era of Pauline Hanson like it's not it's not the freaking classic Australian story Rebecca Gibney's not going to star in the telly movie of this <laughs> And I was like, no one's going to relate to this. It's so niche. It's, you know, like no one's going to, like, why would anyone buy that? I don't even know what the pitch is. But then what I found and what I was really heartened by was like people related to it for all of those reasons in different ways. So like a lot of people read the book because they came from a big family or they grew up in Queensland or they were Asian Australian or they were gay. Like I realized actually there were all these, there are all these points of ways in which Australian stories haven't been uh, written or reflected for Australian readers that this book is tapping into. And that was really, really great to see because I've spent my entire life projecting my story into, you know, films that star Meryl Streep or, um, (laughs) you know, like basically a lot of television and movies starring white people. And I've always seen myself in their stories. So it's been really satisfying 
that non-Asian people have been watching the family law or reading the family law or whatever and seeing their stories represented. Like, you know, we, we expected, especially after the TV show came out, that because the book had done well, we'd get a really strong Asian-Australian audience, and we did, but we captured everyone else as well. And that was really, really great, great to... It was really satisfying. I think what works, though, and what is relatable is that humour humanises people, and that's relatable to everybody. Completely. So when you're looking at family scenarios in awkward situations... You know, everyone sort of been there. It doesn't necessarily need to be that you're a gay person or you're an Asian person watching mm-hmm. or reading that story of the family law. You're like, that's kind of my family. Exactly. Was there a lack of Asian stories being told in Australia at the time? And was that a reason for you deciding to use your family as fodder for your storytelling? I mean, I can't disentangle myself and my creative aims from the idea that I just didn't have these stories growing up. And that there is kind of like a political project here, which is that, you know, in the world of books, yes, you're finally starting to get stories about the Asian diaspora experience. Because otherwise, you know, we were reading Amy Tan books like The Joy Luck Club or reading books that were actually set in China by Chinese people as like a proxy for the Asian-Australian experience. And the Asian-Australian experience is very particular. It isn't the Asian-American experience. It isn't the Asian experience. It's something else. And now that those voices are coming out through books and literature, I'm so glad that other people who are my age when I was growing up looking for those stories can get them now. Um, You know, the Joy Light Club was great and I was like yearning for that representation Um, But to get them here in our country is really important. And similarly, when it comes to television, mainly we just wanted to write a really, really ripper TV show. But at the same time, we're not blind to the fact that there are so few Asian-Australian faces and stories on television. You know, one um, one in 10 Australians have Asian background in this country. And that is proportionate to how many black people there are in the U.S., and you think of how many black stories have come out through film and through television, and you think of how many like brown and yellow stories have come out through Australian screen, and it's like, we've got so much work to do. And yes, I'm happy that we can celebrate the family law, I'm happy that we can celebrate Ronnie Chang's International Student, and I'm happy that we can celebrate Maximum Choppage and my sister's SBS show's Homecoming Queens, but they're four shows so far, you know, like this needs to be the start of of a bigger, bigger wave. Um, Family Law wraps up after season three. Like, I want something to come up next. There should be more shows featuring and about Asian-Australian characters. What's coming up for you next? Um, An MTC play. I'm co-hosting pop culture shows on ABCRN called Stop Everything. Um, I'm co-hosting an online TV show about tech and startups called That Startup Show. But, yeah, I've got a few different things in development. Just keeping well. busy. Yeah. Have you got a message for the queer community that might have been listening to this episode right now? Just enjoy sex and be kind to each other. You know, I think that's the main thing. Just like we we have come so far as a hot mess of different communities, but there's also a lot of work to do. And the only way that we'll get that work done 
when it comes to looking like looking at issues like asylum seekers who have been detained and are LGBTIQ, when it comes to looking at trans rights and legal like fundamental legal rights, when it comes to protecting queer youth, when it comes to making sure that HIV positive people in this country get what they need in terms of like emotional and medical support, when it comes to like legal protections of people. Like, we've got so many more things that we need to achieve, and the only way we're going to do that is if we acknowledge each other's differences, but we be nice to each other. That's a good message in that. Yep. And, you know, like, I'll see you at a party soon. <laughs> yeah, well, to have a drink. Well, Benjamin Law, thank you so much for being able to join Thanks, us ben. on Word for Word. Word for Word is presented and produced by Ben Norris from Australia's LGBTI radio station, Joy. Word for Word is distributed nationally to over 70 radio stations across the community radio network. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation. Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.